0: We're in chapter 8, and uh, the second part of it. Last week, we saw the church scatter. It was the tail end of chapter 7 that we saw uh, Stephen was the first martyr in the life of the church, and it was actually the religious leaders of the day that make sure that he was put to death. So these same men who were trying to protect their own kingdom that they had built for themselves and built on a shaky foundation, these same men did that to Jesus because he threatened the world they'd created for themselves. And it didn't work out for them the way they had hoped. And now there's other people rising to the surface and preaching this same message, not only preaching the same message, but they're actually preaching in the name of Jesus Jesus. Jesus got put on the cross because He claimed to be the Son of God, and then they killed Him for it, and now they can't find His body. They don't want to believe that He raised from the dead, but now they've got a whole cast of people that are out preaching that same message. It's just getting under their skin. And so now they've released the hounds, per se, in the name of Saul And Saul of Tarsus is released by the religious leaders of the day to go out into the community and reach into people's homes, storm through doors, pull people out, men and women alike, and you're going to throw them in prison. And if they don't want to listen, you're going to put them to death. Because if we can't squash this through our own teaching and through our own superiority, then we're going to use fear. And what we see the apostles do is stand up in front of the rest of the church in Jerusalem and say, I love this, Bob Shipp and I were talking about this last night, and this is the analogy he gave me, so I want to give him proper credit for it. Uh, But but the, the apostles sort of stand up in a line in Jerusalem and look at the rest of the church and say, let them focus in on us here in Jerusalem, you guys go and we'll run interference for you here. We're going to stay in Jerusalem. We're going to teach the word here in Jerusalem. And we're going to stay and camped out here and let the religious leaders focus in on us while you scatter and take the gospel and, before, and we'll, we'll, we'll way outpace them. So it's almost like a strategic move on the part of the apostles that we saw last week where the church scatters and takes the gospel and it is it's not now it can't be contained. Now the religious leaders are behind on this and that's what we saw last week is they're focusing in on containing this thing in Jerusalem and they're doing a bad job at even that. So what we saw last week was Philip, in that scattering, goes into Samaria and preaches the gospel. Now, Samaria was the land of the enemy, if you could say it that way the samaritans were seen as as subhuman almost they were they were intermarried they were jews who intermarried during the syrian captivity and i mean assyrian captivity and now they're 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 half jews and this bloodline is not pure and so they're seen as people not worthy to take the gospel to they're seen as not worthy to commit any kind of god ordained work toward because they had their opportunity to tow party lines, per se, and they chose not to. And they made their bed, let them lie in it. That's sort of the approach that people have with the Samaritans. And over time, that one decision to stay and intermarry with the Assyrians has, has of course, like all stories do, has ballooned out. And now people believe the Samaritans to just be unclean, unholy, horrendous people. But what we saw last week is Philip goes there on purpose because when Jesus gives a great commission, he says to go into Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth with this gospel. You be my witnesses, a witness, someone who literally sits on the stand and says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? That's a witness, and so, when Jesus gives the call to go make disciples and to be his witnesses, he says, You have spent all this time with me. You know me. You know who I am. Now go into all the world and tell them exactly what you know of me. Be my witnesses. And so, Philip, one of the guys who was chosen as the first original seven deacons in Acts chapter 5, goes into Samaria and takes the gospel with him, and people come to, go, come to know Christ in droves, and the apostles come, we see Peter and John come, and with them they bring uh, the presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, and they lay hands on the Samaritans, and these people receive the Spirit of living God, and they see this work, the apostles, they see this work, and they see the authenticity by which the Spirit is captivating people, not just Jews, but Gentiles and Samaritans. And it is starting to captivate the world as this thing, this message of the gospel goes out. That's where we left off last week. Uh, If you can't tell week after week, I feel like I'm getting more and more excited and emphatic about this information every time I get in and study it more and more. This is crazy stuff. And... uh, and it's really awesome to see what happens in the lives of ordinary, everyday people when they commit their lives to Jesus, allow the Spirit to fill them, and then they actually just go and do the work. They just depend on the living God to pave the way for them. So where Philip is in Samaria, his uncharted waters, he didn't even have an, a, a risk assessment done, right? He's just going into the land. He really doesn't know where he's going. All he knows is that that's where he needs to be. Philip seems to be a man who is in tune with the Spirit. Before we get a whole lot further into chapter 8, I want to talk about something that I wanted to talk about last week, and I just ran myself out of time. It's fascinating in verse 25 of chapter 8. By the way, if you want to follow along in chapter 8, if you're using the Bible in front of you, it's page 633. Chapter 8, we see, this is where we left off last week. Uh, um, Sorry, I was about to read from chapter 9, and as I read it in my head, I was like, that's not right. So anyway, now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. That's not uncommon, right? Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And I read that, and I thought, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. They returned to Jerusalem, right? They're within the walls of Jerusalem. But who are they witnessing to? Who are they taking the gospel to? Who are they investing into? The villages of the who? Yeah, there are Samaritans living within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. There are villages of them. Now, first of all, I don't want you to picture Jerusalem as like this tiny city surrounded by a moat. You know, I don't know how you picture Jerusalem. Maybe you've been to the Holy Land. Have you seen it? Maybe you haven't. But Jerusalem is a massive city. And at the time, it was one of the largest city of the ancient world. So there are encampments of Samaritans that are still living within the walls of Jerusalem at this time. And the apostles go into Samaria to work with Philip and they see the authenticity by which the Samaritans have received the Holy Spirit and it changes their game plan when they step back into Jerusalem. One man willing to step into uncharted waters to do the work the Holy Spirit had laid on his heart to do changed the course of how the apostles furthered the gospel within the walls of Jerusalem. One guy did that. One guy's obedience to the Holy Spirit changed the course in the game plan and the action plan of how the disciples, how the apostles were furthering the gospel inside Jerusalem because now their game plan was they started preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. They themselves, within the walls of Jerusalem, remember, where the persecution was at its pinnacle, decide that they're going to step out not just to preach, they're going to step into the villages of the Samaritans within the walls of Jerusalem to spread the gospel, and I find that to be fascinating. So we'll pick up on chapter 8, verse 26 today, but know that that's where we left off. Philip is back in Jerusalem with the apostles, and the apostles and Philip, and I'm, I'm sure a score of others, are investing their time into teach into studying, and teaching the gospel, teaching the story of Jesus, we can pretty much guarantee that throughout Jerusalem, more and more people are coming to know Christ on a regular basis. And they continue to do this. And as they're doing this, this is where we leave off. So they're back in Jerusalem, they're ministering to the Samaritans, and this is where we pick up, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Remember that interaction, please. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. through he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay. Now, what we see here, before we go much further, is a contrast between last week's quote-unquote conversion of Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer... Heard the teaching in Samaria on Jesus, and he comes to the apostles. I want that. I want my. I want that. What you're what you're selling? I want it. You're you're healing people, and 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 you're you're drawing a crowd. And I, I feel like I need that. Right. And then the apostles come, and when the apostles come, they lay hands on the people, and the Holy Spirit is brought into those people, and that's how God ordained it to happen at this point in human history. And so Simon the sorcerer, this man who was known to travel throughout Samaria and be well known for his magician tricks, sees this happen and looks at the apostles after he says he's been converted to Christianity and says, how much money? do I have to pay you for you to do that to me? Not only that, I want to know how much money do I have to pay you for not just you to do that to me, but for me to be able to do that to other people. That was awesome. That would draw a crowd. How much? And Peter rebukes him pretty strongly, and he, he tells him at the tail end of, of, chapter, of that section of chapter 8, Peter tells him, your conversion wasn't authentic. I can see inside your heart. And it wasn't real. You want things from your experience with God, but you don't want God, is what he tells him. You want to experience the really cool and awesome things that you get from God, but you don't want to experience God. You don't want obedience to God. You don't want a life filled with with God's character being in you and developing you and flushing out sin. You're not interested in that. If I were you, Simon, I would go back home and I would hit my knees and I would pray that God flushes that ugliness out of your heart because maybe then you will truly be redeemed is what he tells him. So what we see in this section, I believe the reason Luke wrote it this way is because we see a complete contrast to that quote-unquote conversion story with the eunuch. There's a couple things we need to look at to see what's happening here because I, I think they, they, they make the plot thicken a little bit. The first thing is Philip gets told by an angel to go south towards Gaza. He, he gets told by an angel of the Lord how much more awesome would obedience be if that's how it happened for us. If you woke up tomorrow morning and you've been wrestling with this person at work that you feel like, I don't know, I I feel like I should just like try to tell them about Jesus, but I don't see a real clear pathway and I'm not sure. And all of a sudden an angel comes into your bathroom while you're brushing your teeth and says, dude, when you get to work tomorrow, I want you to tell Bill about Jesus. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to ignore, right? It's not like this like, moment where you're like, I don't know, God. I'm not sure. Like Maybe you can create a clear pathway for me. Uh, I'm not 100% sure this is going to go. No, Philip has an angel of the Lord come to him and say, go south toward Gaza, that desert place. Now, it's important that it's written that way for us to understand what he's being asked to do. The first thing that I think you need to know is that... Uh, that Philip's response is pretty awesome because the first part of 27, what does it say? And he rose and went. I think the way we read this in our American culture is at the end of 26 where it says this is a desert place, we put in uh, subsection B of article 2 that says uh, he went to his seven of his closest advisors and asked them to pray over this call on his life for at least three or four months, to make a clear decision and have discernment as to whether or not he was indeed supposed to go on the road to Gaza. Because that's how we make decisions. And we can know that God, and His Spirit inside us, is saying, go and do it. Be my hands and feet. Go and do it. I don't want to put him on the spot. But I knew Dusty graduated college and I knew he didn't completely know exactly where he was going to end up. And I called and I said, if I were to have a space for you to lead worship, will you come down to Philadelphia? Would you think about it? And he said, yes. And I said, are you saying yes to thinking about it or are you saying yes to doing it? He's like, no, I'll do it. Now, some would say that was foolish, but I don't think it was foolish at all. I think it was just the the joy of being willing to, to use his gifts and go somewhere and try something new and plug in and entrench himself in a community, and he's done it. Now, I'm not praising him necessarily. I'm just saying that that's sort of the response that we, not sort of, that's the response we see from Philip in this moment. Yes. We don't see him go back and pack his bags. We don't see any of that. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying we don't have evidence of it. So when we preach through the word, we need to stick to the script. And that's what it says. It says, the angel of the Lord says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. End quote. That's when the angel stops talking. Luke interjects, this is a desert place. Luke wants us to know the road to Gaza is like the armpit of the Middle East at this time. Nobody wants to be there. The angel doesn't say that. Luke says that. So the angel says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The plot thickens here in a second. This, Luke says, by the way, folks, the reader, this is a desert place. That place is miserable. But what did Philip do? He rose and went. So he just, immediate obedience... Now, this is not a road Jews would typically travel. I'm referring to these as the three Ds that would lead a Jew to never go down this road. It was a desert, it was difficult, and it was dangerous. It was a desert, it was difficult, and it was dangerous. If you were a Jew traveling down this road, you would most likely get robbed. Or you would die Because you were walking down a desert road towards enemy territory. By the way, do you know who lived in Gaza? Do you know who controlled Gaza? Do you know who was in charge and who was was down there? The Philistines. And if you know anything about the Old Testament story of the Israelite people, them and the Philistines didn't quite get along. It started before their king killed their giant, but it just got worse after that. The Philistines were rugged, horrible people to the Israelites. When, when Goliath, this is going to be a little bit graphic, but just, just, to, just to prove my point here. When Goliath looks at David and says, I will rip off your head and I will have you on toast. I will rip off your head and I will have you on bread. As, as that's what he tells David. Don't, don't come at me, little man, because if you do, I'm going to grab you. I'm going to rip your head off. I'm going to eat some of you on some bread. You know why he said that? Because they literally did that kind of stuff to Israelites. And they did it publicly because they wanted Israelites to know we're superior to you, and if you try to come at us, it's not going to go well for you. So that's, why, that's one of the reasons, just sidebar, that's one of the reasons why the story of David and Goliath is so rich and beautiful, one of the many reasons. But that, that's the Philistines, And that's their relationship with the Israelites. And the road to Gaza led to Philistine territory. So Philip willingly and and immediately heads down this path. He's going down this road with 100% obedience. Now, I think that says something, A, about Philip's character and his understanding who God is. But B, that says something about how we should be taking the gospel out. Listen, I... I can't say with all certainty because I've never met the guy. But I'm guessing that Philip, in his own human flesh, wouldn't have chosen to walk down the desert path to Gaza. I don't know if this is where he would have said, hey, you know where I'm going to spend the rest of my day? Walking towards the Philistines to tell them about Jesus. Actually, take me down the worst road possible for that to happen. So Philip gets told this by an angel directly. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't manifest Himself through angels. I'm just saying that it is not common. If you have an an angel encounter story, I'd love to hear it. It is not common in our culture, at least, for that to happen. So we have to ask ourselves, if Philip got told directly by an angel, how will we know when we're called? To be there. And my thing is that when Philip saw an angel, he knew it was an angel. When the angel spoke the words from God, he knew they were coming from God. That's important because for you to be able to know whether you're supposed to go somewhere scary and do something scary for the Lord, you're going to have to know the Lord's voice and you're going to have to know that it's coming from Him. And how you know that is by getting into this book yourself not being fed by someone else, although this is important. Going to Bible studies is important. Reading commentaries is important, but making sure that you're setting aside time more and more and more over time to entrench yourself in what the Word of God says because this is where the Word of God resides. This is where His voice resides. And you communicate to Him in prayer. He communicates back to you through His Word. So, When you are in God's Word, God will speak, period. When you are in God's Word, He will speak to you. And you might not have an angel come down to you and say something specific like, get on the road and head south towards Gaza. But God will speak to you. And the question that you have to wrestle with in that moment is, will you respond like Philip did? Before we dig into the rest of this, it's important to also know that when it talks about the Ethiopian, it's talking about him being an Ethiopian eunuch. It does not not identify him as uh, the queen's treasurer right away. It tells us that he is an Ethiopian and it tells him that he's a eunuch. And then it tells us he's a court official of Candace. Now, why is that important? Well, eunuchs were unable to reproduce. If you want to know why, don't Google it. I will tell you after the sermon. But they, they pulled these men aside and they made sure that they did a procedure to them that would ensure that they would not reproduce, and that was a means of control. It was also a means to, to communicate that they had value as long as they did what they were supposed to do, but they didn't want these people duplicating themselves. Ethiopia was seen in this time as like the edge of the world. That was about as far south as anybody knew things existed. But Ethiopian, this Ethiopian eunuch, just because he was a Gentile, would have excluded him from any of the worship that could have happened at the temple. But adding to, Luke wants to make sure that we know he's a eunuch because he is doubly unclean. He is ceremonially unclean for the rest of his days because he's a eunuch. He is, he is, he's a Gentile also, which means he's not even allowed inside the courts at the temple. He is doubly unable to worship. But the, the crazy thing is, is in the midst of all that, we still see this man hungry for truth. We see him hungry for truth. Now listen to this exchange. Back in the ancient days, by the way, when you read the Word of God, you read it out loud. It was, it was extremely common to just hear people reading from what they had of the Scriptures out loud. So when it says that Philip heard him speak the words... You remember in verse 30 here it says so Philip ran to him because the the spirit said to Philip go over and join this chariot Philip ran to him and what he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he asked him an amazing question not an insulting one a needed one he said do you understand what you're reading Do you understand what you're reading And the Ethiopian responds with a humble response. He doesn't look and say, of course I know what I'm reading. You see how nice my chariot is? How dare you ask me such questions? He doesn't have this like, uh, I can't admit that I don't know what the Word of God says. He says, how can I know what this says unless someone teaches me? What he's saying is, I'm not allowed in the temple. I'm not allowed to go where this is taught. I'm allowed to read it, but I'm not allowed to ask any questions. I'm not allowed to go where the religious people are that can actually teach me on what this says. I'm not allowed there. They've told me, because I'm I'm not a Jew and because I'm a eunuch, both decisions I wasn't allowed to make for myself, by the way. I'm not allowed to go where this is taught. So how can I know? what this says unless someone teaches me what it says. How can I unless someone guides me, he says, and then he, he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Now Luke tells us what passage it was, Luke, Luke tells us this, but I want to show you something Because Luke getting in this chariot is an amazing moment, and Paul reinforces this thought in Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 12 through 15. Listen to them, because Paul says this to the church in Rome. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now then, will you call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's saying it doesn't matter what what your ethnicity is. How are people going to know the gospel unless the people who have the gospel take it out to them? That's what Paul's saying. And that's what Philip is doing. So, how does Philip respond? They look at the passage together. Let me just tell you a Charles Spurgeon quote that I love. Charles Spurgeon said this A preacher's duty is to read the text and make a beeline to the cross. The, the job of a teacher of the word, of a pastor, of anyone, anyone of you or me that has the opportunity to open the pages of God's word and answer a question about God's word to somebody that's asking it, our job is to read the text and then make a beeline to Jesus. And that's exactly what Philip does. Now, to Philip's... Uh, in Philip's case, he gets thrown a little bit of a softball here. This isn't one of those ones where someone says, Hey Pastor Adam, like I used to get when I was a youth pastor, hey Pastor Adam, why does the Bible say that you shouldn't you shouldn't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? And I remember the first time I heard a kid read say that to me and inside I'm thinking, It doesn't say that. So this is, this is not one of those moments where, where Philip has to do a whole lot of like theological undergirding to be able to get to Jesus. This scripture that this, that this eunuch is reading, it's about Jesus. So the question that he asks is this. He looks at Philip and he says, the, the passage that I'm reading... Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah and he looks at Philip in the chariot as they're going down the road and he says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say these things? About himself or about someone else? Is Isaiah talking about himself and his own experience or is he talking about someone else? And Philip's like, boom, here we go. Let's talk about Jesus. It's a a softball. And, And Philip lines up. He's like, out of the park. He's going to take this one all the way home, right? So Philip, then it says in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture, that implies that Philip didn't just point to one thing. He pointed to several places and led this eunuch down a path of pointing him to Jesus. Why would he do that? Well, because the core character in all of scripture is Jesus. In verse 38, Well, first of all, let's just go to 36. As they're going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He doesn't say, we're on a desert road. There's water. Let's stop and get a drink. He hears all about Jesus. And he stops Philip and says, there's water on the side of the road. What's stopping us from from stopping right now and you baptizing me? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And verse 38 is a beautiful verse because Philip doesn't say, well, you've got to go through our Baptism 101 classes on Sunday mornings. They meet at 8.30, from 8.30 to 9.15. To, to and once you go through those seven classes and, and, and sign our covenant agreement, then you can be baptized. We schedule our baptisms for this Sunday, and you have to wear a, a weird white robe and stand in front of people and say something in a microphone that's dangerously close to the water. I'm being facetious on that. But haven't we somewhat made the commitments to Jesus a little too cumbersome and ceremonial? Philip leads this guy to Jesus, and he sees water, and he says, what's keeping me from being baptized? And Philip doesn't even answer the question. They just get down in the water, and he baptizes him. And I think it's a beautiful question for anyone in this room, not to guilt anyone, not to throw guilt down on you. That's not my point, but it's an important question for all of us to ask. If you are sitting in this room and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, have you asked yourself the question that the eunuch asks himself, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from making a public proclamation to the world around me that I belong to Jesus? What prevents me from gathering with the body of Christ and celebrating the decision I've made to commit my life to Jesus? Philip doesn't even answer him. He just takes him down to the water. And verse 38, when it says that he, they stopped the chariot and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him, Philip once again is showing how the gospel is continuing to break outside the boundaries of Israel. Verse 39 is a mysterious one. If you read it and you wonder, uh, I'm going I'm to give you the best answer I could find. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And we don't really know what that means. Well, we don't really know. It's not completely known. Even if you go back into the Greek of what Luke is saying here, it's not completely known. All we know is that he seemed to have miraculously been transported out of the presence of the eunuch but here's what's crazy about all that is we can get hung up on what does that mean he got carried away is he teleported what's happening here right does that mean he just walked the distance away no it it says that he was carried away and then when we see verse 40 start philip found himself at Azotus. it doesn't mean like he he just ran away really fast We know that somehow he was miraculously transported out of there and into Azotus. But what was what's most remarkable, and I think we need to recenter ourselves on, is it says in verse thirty nine, and they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. He didn't even take inventory of the fact that the dude that just baptized had disappeared. He didn't even go like, dude, did you see that? He's so consumed with the fact that he belongs to Jesus now that he can't stop rejoicing in the fact that this change has happened to him. That something he was told his entire life he was not worthy to have, he now owns. And it's leading him to rejoicing. His whole life, he was told he wasn't allowed to have access to this. No one would take the time to tell him what this passage meant. This man was given massive amounts of responsibility. He's in charge of all the money of the queen of Ethiopia. He's in charge of it. He's been given massive amounts of responsibility, he's been given massive amounts of respect. But the religious community, because of some of the things that he was born into and decisions that were made for him that he had no choice in, the religious community of the day said, you're not worthy to have this truth and you're not worthy to be taught what it says. And they made their systems so cumbersome that this man was able to read the word but not know what it meant. And it's convicting. It should be convicting. As established church, we should make our, our pathways for people to understand the Word of God so simple that there's no excuse why they're not doing it. We should clear the way for people to understand the Word of God. We should be so accessible and available to taking the word out to those who might not understand at the level we do. Sometimes we're so overeducated with the truth about God and we never wring out the sponge. And the local church is the best place for us to be equipped in that truth and then take it out, deliver it out to the world around us. Be accessible to the world around us. Don't ever think that your question about what the word of God says is so stupid that you can't ask it. And if someone does ask a question to you that you think because you're so saturated in this, that you think it is a dumb question, don't you dare laugh at them. Don't you dare make them feel small for asking the question. You show up just like Philip did. And we answer their questions and we walk with them through life. That is discipleship. Philip is making a disciple here. Now, this is the only time we see Philip interact with the Ethiopian unit. As a matter of fact, we don't know where he ends up after this. We know where Philip goes. We don't know where the unit goes. I don't know what kind, what kind of work this man was able to do for the gospel, but I know in this moment he got it. And he got it because someone was willing to take it to him. He got it because someone was willing to talk to him, even though the religious community of the day told him he wasn't allowed to have it. You see, there's no joy like the joy of the Lord. And when we, are, when we are encased in the joy of the Lord, we really and truly and honestly stop caring what people think about us. Now, we have to recalibrate that all the time. But Philip broke through all kinds of barriers here. He walked down a road that some people told him he shouldn't have walked down. He walked towards people he shouldn't have been around. He was in the middle of the heat. There's so many things that the logical world would have told him don't do, and he did it anyway. And when the eunuch gets his questions answered, it leads him to baptize, to baptism where he, where he understands who Jesus is and just wants to be faithful to that call. He makes a public proclamation of his faith, and then he leaves rejoicing, Because there's no joy like the joy of the Lord. The lyrics to our closing song are going to come up on the screen. I want to look at them for a second. Because I think it's important for us to look at what they say. We won't fear the battle. We won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us. You will lead the way. We have found a refuge Only you can save. Now think about that in comparison to the story of the Ethiopian. Philip had to walk down this road. It was a a scary place. But God had prepared all of that ahead of time. God had that all mapped out. God had gone before him. God had led the way. And the only one that could save that Ethiopian was Jesus. Go to the next slide. Sing with joy, now our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice, now no, now no love is greater. Who can stand against us if God is for us? So when we walk out the doors today and we interact with our families and we go back to work tomorrow and we do whatever we're going to do, are we going to be like Philip where we step into the world filled with the Spirit of God and filled with the knowledge of God and being able to understand this Scripture in front of us at at differing levels? Are we going to be willing to ask questions when we don't know what it means and are we going to be willing to answer questions when we have the answers? Are we going to be willing to step into somebody else's story and walk with them? Are we going to be willing to walk down the desert path knowing that God has already prepared the way? And when we have Jesus, are we willing to make that public decision to say that we have him? When you feel everything mounting against you in your faith, will you understand and will we be the people that grapple with the reality that God's love is a strong and mighty fortress? who can stand against us if God is for us. The worst thing the world can take from you, the worst thing the world can do to you, is put you in the presence of Jesus. That's the worst thing that can happen to you here. Let's pray. God, you are our strong and mighty fortress. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? So, Lord, I pray that we can be uh, people that are overjoyed with just the gift of knowing You. Lord, that we can be people that know You, that, that serve You, that love You, and we're doing all of that just because of who You are, not because of anything we might get out of it. God, continue to captivate our hearts with the stories of Your Word. Thank You for us being able to see Your faithfulness all through it. And as we stand and sing... Who can be against us if our God is for us? Make that rock solid in our hearts. So we leave this place. We care more about how to serve you and what to do in obedience to our king than what it looks like to look more like the world.